Kinesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an Associate Professor of Management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody. Today on the podcast, we have Mark Minaldo, an associate professor of liberal studies. He's at Texas A&M Commerce. And then we have Brent Kusher, who is an associate professor in the Department of Leadership and American Studies at Christopher Newport University. And they literally just put out a book, Philosophy and Leadership, Three Classical Models and Cases. Brent, maybe we'll start with you, sir. What blanks do we need to fill in about your background? Well, uh, let me just say, Scott, that it's really nice to, to be be here and uh, a real pleasure to be part of the, the podcast. Yeah, so so I'm uh, in the Department of Leadership in American Studies at Christopher Newport University, and that was a real uh, blessing for me about 10, ten years ago. My, my whole background is in political science and specifically political theory, this, you know, the study of philosophic texts from a political point of view. But, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people know, listeners, when you're on the academic job market, you apply for anything and everything that seems <laughs> to be a good fit and got sort of word of, a, of this job in leadership studies at Christopher Newport University. And I looked at it and I said, goodness gracious, that seems to check a lot of the boxes for, for me. A lot of my, my research was on the concept of foundational lawgiving and the, the figure of the this sort of quasi-mythical figure of the lawgiver in the writings of Plato and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, an 18th century philosopher from, from G Geneva. So generally this figure who sets down foundational laws for a group of people with a very loose sort of association with one another and kind of stamps on this group a sense of peoplehood, a sense of nationhood, uh, bringing them bringing them together. And I thought, well, that seems like leadership to me. <laughs> and and I used the word blessing a moment ago, and it, it really is. I, I just consider myself lucky every day to have found this, this field, to be able to stretch out a little bit, to learn from people from management, psychology, history, classics, all, all kinds of different, different yeah. fields. Right. It's amazing. Biology, sociology, anthropology. I mean, the list and the lenses, adult learning, adult development. It's really such a fascinating space. Awesome. Thank you for being here, sir. Mark. Brent and I have something of a parallel uh, uh, rearing in, in our PhDs. I also have a PhD in political science uh, with an emphasis in political 
theory, political philosophy. I sort of happened upon leadership because of my dissertation, which was a sort of a cockamamie idea I had. I presented my dissertation advisor. It's like, I'm going to do uh, anything I want. <laughs> <laughs> so, those were the those were the words i'm gonna do anything i want it was kind of risky there was no track there was no sort of path for it so i took i married my interest in international relations and political philosophy and i realized that there's sort of the gap you know what we do as scholars we look for this gap somewhat and that gap was leadership or yeah. agency or individuals uh, if you know enough about social science you know that individuals matter very little nobody cares mm-hmm. At best, individuals are simply uh, whatever incentives or disincentives are pushing them in the moment to make this very constrained decisions. So I thought, well, isn't it possible to think of individuals rising to certain occasions and there and actually be in the sort at the forefront of change rather than simply reacting to change? So I used political philosophy to inform international relations theory about pot- individuals throughout history that maybe are the um, you know these sort of idealized types who actualize change and therefore are, are leaders in their own right. And at the time, I was still still pretty much a political scientist. And I was talking about blessings. I somehow ended up in contention for the um, Javelin Disserta- Dissertation Award. You did. And you did. I won. Yes. Ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> and they flew me to London. It was great. And I had never heard of leadership studies. Well, and, and I believe it's Jepson that sponsors that award isn't it I... yeah they, and they paid for the flight they gave me some money i took my wife she was happy but that sort of kind of flung me into the leadership world and i published a book in joanne chulia's uh leadership series yep. and ever since and that's and i met brent through ila and from that moment forward we became good friends and we've been collaborating ever since and so all my work in some sense you know i wouldn't say i'm leadership studies heavy but yeah. everything I write is for a, I think, a leadership uh, audience. Mark, would you explain this kind of concept to me? I had a, a colleague, a history professor at my institution once say, because I said, you, you teach history, you must talk about leadership. And he said, no, we really don't talk about leadership. And that really kind of, it, it took me aback. Would you talk about some of the historical roots behind that for listeners? Because you mentioned it a little bit ago. It's, it's again, the individual is kind of thrust into the context, right? The situation yeah. and has little agency. I, I think that, you know, from the, from the very ordinary language perspective, like any listener might understand. I think if you talk, start talking about the importance of individuals in history, in politics, in life, from an academic perspective, you might sound naive. What are you missing? You're missing complexity. You're missing nuance. You're missing context. You're missing, which is absolutely true. You should look into all these things. And the more nuance you get, however, the more you are less willing to grant that an individual matters beyond very constrained choice box, we'll call it, right? So that do you really think that Pericles sort of transformed Athens and and produced a whole new type of way of thinking and living so that the Athenians would absolutely change their mind about war and not and not meet the Spartans on, on land in a phalanx to phalanx combat? 
No, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be far more complex than that, than one person running the show, one person having the attributes or intelligence or foresight or imagination, charisma to actually move an entire society to a moment and actually changing the rules of the game. So in the past, I guess people call this great man theory or it seems very heroic, but in, in present day academia, it's, I, I think people think it's kind of naive and it's silly to think such. It's kind of a fairy tale way of seeing the world. So leadership doesn't matter for the most part in most academic disciplines. See, that's so interesting to me because an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs, they were for, they are or were in some cases forces of nature that I don't know that we would be where we are without Elon Musk and space travel. I don't know that absent that individual, someone would have come along and said, I'm going to start my own rocket company, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's at least rare that that individual can move forward. So it's such an interesting and different way of thinking about it. Brent, how do you think about it? Do you agree it's, a, it's naive or do you see it as a both and or what's your perspective? I suppose if I had to choose, I would probably say more of a of a both and. I mean, I agree with with basically everything that Mark had had said. The extent to which it seems natural nowadays to identify sort of forces of history or or forces in the system outside of us, you know, controlling things that happen, as opposed to individuals with agency, individuals making making decisions. And I guess I say both and because I, I do think that one of the lessons of philosophy and one of the things that we try to accomplish with the book is that you know, human life is so nuanced. Human life is so complex and so complicated. And oftentimes there is no one perfect answer to these questions. And it's, you know, it's, it's important to, I think, keep some of those, some of those tensions alive. To embed somebody like Pericles of Athens inside of the context in which he lived, what was the Athenian system of government like? What was Athenian society like? What was he dealing with in terms of the wider global situation? What was the culture like? That, that sort of thing. But not to swing too far to the side of, you know, it's all just sort of historically determined, but to try to really hone in on what leadership is doing. I, I mean, I think it can be tough, but I think it's definitely, definitely worthwhile to a worthwhile project. Barbara Kellerman calls it the leadership system, right? The, the, it's a relationship between the, the individual, the leader, the followers and the context. And it's probably true that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a mixture of those with an infinite number of variables. And in some instances, it probably was the context. And in some instances, it was probably follower-driven, and the figurehead was only that. And in other contexts, maybe it was that individual that really dragged things forward or, or you know, and did great good or great harm in, in history. Absent that personality, maybe we wouldn't have gone there or that wouldn't have occurred. So it's so much fun. Let's talk a little bit about Aristotle, Plato, and Machiavelli. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit more about why. Why this book? We wanted to write a book that really demonstrated a couple of, of things. For, first of all, the usefulness of philosophy for, for having a much more capacious understanding of leadership, having a much more, uh, much more interesting understanding of leadership, and ultimately for certain practical purposes. One of the things that we, we try to tackle in, in the introduction is to, is to say, we know that philosophy can kind of have a reputation. Be, you know, these are a lot of thick, extremely difficult books 
by authors who, you know, I, what what is an Immanuel Kant think? What does Martin Heidegger think of, you know, X, X Y, and Z? And and we, we want to say that in, in many respects, that opinion is probably a, a like a, a bad and kind of an unfair rap, that a, a lot of philosophic texts, if studied properly, if read properly, if read carefully, are easy to access, you know, not dealing with pie-in-the-sky issues, but dealing with very practical issues. And in fact, much more than this, are beautifully written and engaging and worth a second and a third read. And we, we really feel that Plato's Republic, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and Machiavelli's The Prince are, are three texts that sort of fit that description to a T. And I, and, and I think what we wanted to do was to present them in such a way as to say, oh, you know, it might not be the hardest thing to sit down and read Plato's Republic and think about it from a leadership angle. That It might actually be quite, quite a worthwhile project. Mark, anything to add, sir? I think I'll add that one thing that separates this book from what you might conceive as philosophy is that if you read the chapters and you read the way we write about philosophy – we in some sense separate ourselves from what you might consider academic philosophy. And I think that is probably one of the barriers of entry, uh, especially into leadership studies, because academic philosophy, you get very much lost in the sort of almost sort of these definitional separate uh, categories that separate philosophy into fields. So you really, you know, it really is, you kind of have to learn the tools of the trade if you want to participate in academic philosophy. Are you going to do metaphysics, epistemology, aesthetics, more on social political philosophy, logic. And by the time you just remember those five, you're exhausted. Brent and I approach philosophy in the same way, which is we see philosophy as one big conversation amongst individuals across time. What we want to do is invite people to that conversation. That was really, really beautifully said. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I'd be loath to add anything to, to that wonderful thing, but I just think one of the barriers to to access is just the extent to which academics speak in terms of jargon. At, at some point, you know, a person simply can express what they're thinking clearly with basic language that everybody can understand. And, and I, I, you know, we, I think we both believe that all three of these books do precisely that, and we're hoping to demonstrate it. Well, you all start out with Plato. So let's talk a little bit about Plato and what were a couple insights from that chapter, chapter two, and that, that listeners could kind of whet the appetite for listeners when it comes to his work. Well, I, I I think I'll start by saying that I, I don't mind putting all of my cards on the table and saying that I think that Plato is the most interesting philosopher that there was for a number of reasons. One most important one is that he never wrote in his own voice. He only wrote dialogues. And The Republic, the book that we explore, is in fact a dialogue. It's a conversation among a number of men in, in Athens. It takes place in this area of Athens called the Piraeus. It's a, the, the port of, uh, of, of Athens. And Socrates, of course, is the main speaker and, and the, the main character of this dialogue, but there's a whole constellation of characters in this 
in this dialogue, a bunch of young men who, you know, who come from some of the aristocratic classes in the city, some of the people who could have assumed, have been assumed to, to go on to, to lead lives in public leadership in the city of Athens, you know, people who would eventually be stepping into a role where they would be making you know, real decisions about, about the way that the city was moving. You have an, another character, the dialogue, a man named Thrasymachus, who's a real figure in the ancient world. He was a sophist. He traveled around and he sold his services, which was to teach students how to basically speak and gain control in, in the, the city. He was essentially a, a teacher for hire. And so there's this wonderful interplay between, between characters, Socrates and Thrasymachus sort of fighting it out to try to influence these, these young individuals. And so just to kind of loop back around and to kind of close this, this thought, one of the most interesting things about exploring a, a, an author like Plato is that you really get roped in into this conversation yourself. You know, you you say like, well, why did Socrates respond in this way? Should he have responded in this way? Should he have said something different? If I were this other character, Glaucon, let's say, Glaucon is one of the young men that he um, he speaks with the, the most, you know, would, would I have said something different? Or, or why did he say this at this particular point in time? And so, and so that, that kind of model of education, I think, is really important with understanding what Plato is trying to do. Mark, anything you want to add on Plato? Just to agree with Brent that part of the joy of reading Plato is being part is be it's almost as if you're in a theater watching a, a drama take place on the edge of your seat and so Adamantus and Glaucon the bro- these brothers are are just waiting like is Socrates going to pull this off is he going to be able to define justice even though it seems like it's impossible is he right and so the the story is just unfold in this these waves of drama and it's it's very much Socrates the sort of hero anti-hero punching punching his way to making possible that these brothers or Plato get the def- the, the view of justice that they desperately owed so need or else they're going to end up like Thrasymachus. Yeah, the, the thing about Plato is, I mean, I became a philosophy student because I read The Republic. <laughs> there is something transhistorical about the way he invites you to the conversation there. And I might jump off of this, if if you don't mind, to just kind of indicate that in the book, we present something of a outside of the box reading of, of what the leadership implications of Plato's Republic are. I mean, w- w- one first thing to say v- very directly is that the whole subject of the book is on justice, on the, the theme of justice. And if justice is not related to leadership studies, then I don't know what what it is. You know, I mean, you know, what when we think about leaders acting in the world, we tend to presume leadership for the good, for for just ends, you know, for the, the right way of living, that that sort of thing. And and these individuals are expo- are exploring that. And so that's maybe the first thing to say. But but to explain what I mean by the outside of the box comment, I think the the easiest way to look at Plato's Republic and say this is relevant to leadership is to say that Socrates in this dialogue gives us a model of the philosopher king as the most important leader, where he says that unless philosophy and political power come together at a, at a certain point in time, there will be no end to the ills in cities and in individual lives. And so it, it's, and, and I think a lot of people who approach this dialogue from a leadership studies lens would say, well, that's what Plato wants to, wants to say. And it, it very much sounds kind of like 
Thomas Carlyle's great man idea, you know, that, that the one sort of superhuman figure, right, this superhuman philosopher kind of comes onto the scene and solves everybody's problems. But what Mark and I try to argue is that careful reading of the dialogue would suggest that Socrates means that not so much as a practical model, sort of a practical blueprint for how we should sort of shape leadership in, in the here and now, but rather kind of a, a heuristic device to think about other things and think about other problems related to leadership. And what what turns out to be much more interesting is that in the dialogue, education and leadership seem to be somehow synonymous or, or linked together in a way that I think is much more relevant to how we we might think about leadership in, in the here and now, as opposed to saying, you know, we're going to need to bring somebody in to be a philosopher king and rule everybody. What Socrates does in that dialogue is to really indicate what the connections are between leadership and education. Well, and at one point, you all even begin to define, and I may not get this exactly correct, but did you take the roots of educate and basically it's to lead forward or lead out? It's almost uh, the, the notion of the cave to, would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and I think I think that's precisely right. I mean, if you look at the etymology of education, E or X from out, out from, and then it comes from the word ducere, which means to, to lead. Um, so education is leading out from, uh, out out of, from one's incorrect or incoherent or incomplete opinions about the world into, into a much more, you know, robust, clear understanding of how things are. You mentioned, Scott, a moment ago that the cave, I mean, this is the most famous analogy in, in the dialogue, the allegory of the cave, where, you know, we are all prisoners at the beginning, enchained, looking at shadows on the wall that are being cast on the wall. By a lot of people we tend to think of when we think of leadership studies, you know, media, authoritative figures, our parents, our, our other educators, that sort of thing. And education becomes the process then of liberating oneself from those chains, turning around and moving yourself out into into the light of the day, all a metaphor, of, of, of course. And so that, that opens up a whole host of possibilities when we think about leadership, I, I would say. You all use Bill Gates as almost a modern day example of some of what uh, was being discussed, right? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the thing of, uh, of talking about the modern case is that Brennan and I said, look, we, all we know is politics. Let's, let's try to do something different. You know, <laughs> uh, we're babes in the woods uh, outside of politics. And it's like, there's got to be someone out there that sort of, um, you know, if, if not platonic, resembles something like a, someone who aspires to, to use reason as, as their, their North Star. And looking through the examples, it's just Bill Gates, the odd duck that he is. There are these, on the surface, he's not, you know, he's, he's got this foundation and he was Microsoft. But if you see the process that, that he takes, both as he, when, when he was an entrepreneur and as a philanthropist, he really is an outlier. I believe, right? He's an outlier because he has a deliberative mode of engaging the world. You would think, oh, he's an empiricist and very data-driven, but in fact, he's very contemplative about it. He, in fact, in the in this platonic mode, has to distance himself from, let's call it, the cave. So, I have to engineer a new, a new solution to an existing problem. 
And we know that existing problems continue to be problems, usually because of sort of inertia of institutions or, you know, uh, the things seem too costly and we're just used to doing certain things in certain ways. Bill Gates is one of these people who let's think, let's find a new, new path to the waterfall. There's a great show on Netflix. I'm sure the two of you have watched it, Inside Bill's Brain, but it does a beautiful job of helping you understand just even his approach to learning. I mean, he carries around a bag of books <laughs> on all of these different topics, whether it's nuclear energy or toilets, because he's constantly working to educate himself and learn and try and better understand. And then to your point, Mark, and this may not have been your point, so please, by all means, say it wasn't. You know, he's come to the conclusion that nuclear energy is a potentially a good thing. Just how we did it wasn't the correct way, and we can update that and make it much more safe and still harness a lot of the power from it. But then he's trying to then influence others through data and logic that this is the best path forward. You know, if you look across the board at our options, but he's done the research, he's studied the problem, he's talked with the people, really investigated it in a very systematic way. Right, and in some sense, he goes beyond the sort of taking for granted, nuclear has to be bad, right? <laughs> you know, we just, you have to presume it's bad, why? Because everybody says it's bad, bad, it's bad, it's bad. And you know, something about Gates says, well, have we thought about it in a different way? And it may not be that he on, an, on his own solves these problems, he obviously doesn't, but he's willing to he's willing to look at an old problem in a new way, and I find that to be just uh, in terms of leadership uh, for today's world, especially, seems like a, a valuable and useful way that you know I don't necessarily want to be Bill Gates. I, I we say this at the end of the of the section on Gates. There's something still a little too I think utility maximizing about him that he there's something that he doesn't want to give up. He's not willing to cede and give way and say, you know, there may be reasons to uh, look at problems in, in, in a way that is simply for the sake of their interests or their beauties. He's, he's very hung up on this view of optimization. But I do think he is a path-breaking person when it comes to looking at, especially the problems that confront us today, from an almost contemplative point of view, in addition to a technical. Well, he steps ahead. Sure. He steps ahead in his logic and his thinking, whether it was the TED talk about pandemics or this whole concept of nuclear, or, I mean, we can go down the list of what the Gates Foundation has worked on. I think his challenge is how do we influence now and truly shift some of those gigantic systems and move past some of those barriers that are going to be very, very difficult, even in people's minds, like you said, nuclear. That's just bad. How do you begin to shift the mindset of millions of people and decision makers on some of those topics. That's, it, it's complex. And if I may add one thing really, really briefly here, it seems to me that Gates is a, a great example to try to you know, hammer home what the use of maybe the, our, our, our book it's, itself is insofar as Plato's analysis of leadership, Plato's analysis of you know, the, the, the human world and human affairs and how we operate with, with each other seems to shed light on on a character like Gates. You know, it's it's not one of these things where it's going to be a guidebook to 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 turn you into the next Bill Gates, right? Even if you wanted to, even if you wanted to do that. But it, it helps us as critical thinkers and people who are engaging with these ideas and trying to make sense of them to to perhaps see them a little bit more 
clearly or, or a little bit more in the light of day as opposed to, to in the shadows. And, you know, I use those, those metaphors obviously very, very much intentionally because that's precisely what, what Socrates is trying to say in the book. You know, we have, we have, we're a little bit close on time. We've been going for about 35 minutes. Is there something else that you want to share with listeners, a, a reflection you have on the process of writing the book? Or is there some other lesson that kind of really maybe struck either one of you that you'd like to highlight before we wind down? You know, in the chapters on Aristotle and Machiavelli, part of the, the, reasoning is, the reasoning is, well, how do you then move on from Plato, from the philosopher king, from these sort of grand notions of education and seeing the truth and reality and leadership? Well, Aristotle, although he's close and very much close in time to Plato, in fact, provides, in fact, the sort of second thrust of philosophy in history, which seems to be a very grounded view of philosophy, especially in the view of morality and character and building leadership through an education that is built not necessarily on the process of reasoning and philosophy and education, but the process of the correct formation through what is called character formation, doing the good thing and the right thing in the right way, in the right place. And Aristotle's understanding, this is done simply through a sort of habitual practice of things that the people who are going to do it already sort of know. It's a very odd way of looking at uh, leadership, but uh, that seems to be Aristotle's main thrust. And our point in Aristotle is to pinpoint uh, one of these virtues, which is called greatness, greatness of soul. And I just want to mention that the reason that why we bring Machiavelli in third is not only because he's historically one of the most important philosophers for the modern era, because he's the first modern philosopher, we would say, is that he's directly engaging with Plato and Aristotle in the sense of saying, I'm, you could almost call Machiavelli the anti-philosopher. All this claptrap about, about uh, philosopher kings and moral virtue is making people who are, care about leadership go nuts. You're, they're going nuts because they don't know what they're talking about. And in fact, they're going to end up in a worse situation worrying about highfalutin ideas on the one hand and trying to be good on the other. Machiavelli says it very frankly. Those who try to be uh, good amongst all these other people who are bad end up ruined. So what he's trying to do is absolutely redefine the whooping wharf of philosophy so as so that people's in the spirit of your uh, podcast their practical outcomes are actually uh, practice is actually good for them for a change rather than yeah. end up uh, mucking things up yeah I, I i like that as a uh, as a description and and maybe the what i'll add is is very brief we like aristotle and machiavelli as you know, consecutive chapters, because there is such a neat disagreement between the, the two characters. Aristotle is all about moral character and promoting moral character and explaining how, how leaders must, you know, must have the right moral character and enumerate, he enumerates all of these different virtues. And Machiavelli is precisely the opposite, you know, you know, so, so Aristotle would say that our leaders must be generous, must be liberal individuals, must give of themselves of their resources in the proper way, you know, to the right people in the right way at the right time in the right amount. That's sort of sort of this middle measuring measured way of, of Aristotle. Machiavelli takes that and he says, well, if you actually practice that virtue, 
you develop a reputation for the vice. Now, now, why is that? Because if you continue to be generous, if you give all of your things away, in order to continue doing it, you're going to have to start taking from people, you know, raising taxes or, or how, however that, that works. And then your, your followers are upset with you, you know? And, and so Machiavelli has this kind of wonderful and, and also in some ways sinister, you know, way, way of thinking about the questions of, of morality that just makes it such an interesting pairing with, with Aristotle. And, and I think if we want to do anything in the, with this book, it's, it's not to provide the, the clear cut answers, but again, to kind of raise the question of these tensions in this complicated business of, of leadership and, and humanity. And, and we hope that maybe, you know, something like the Aristotle Machiavelli pairing can do something like that. Mark, anything else? Sure. And I'll add, I'll add the following. I think if you read our book and are at the same time steeped in leadership um, studies literature, I think you're, and this is a bold claim, but being that we are writing about bold thinkers, we'll make a bold claim. <laughs> I think you're going to start to understand why leadership studies sounds a little cacophonous, right? Okay. Why there are, there's all these distinctive theories. Right? All these theories that seem to be, we need transformational leadership because there's transactional leadership and transactional leadership isn't good enough. Or we need authentic leadership because it seems like we need good leaders and authentic leaders to help us out. We need servant leadership because we need to see self-sacrificial leadership. But all these sort of siloed notions, uh, theories of leadership, if you go back to the roots, which is philosophy, you will see that these ideas in a non-sort of modern language have already been thought. They're embedded in the history of philosophy. They've been articulated in different language and different ways by Plato, Aristotle, Machiavelli. And that's why, as we started, if we bring you into this conversation, it may be helpful then when we look at leadership studies today, abilities to organize our thoughts. Right? And ask ourselves, are these theories in some sense new? Are these theories in some sense helpful? Do they, do they make sense? And are they ones we actually want to engage with or should we dump them? <laughs> we bring leadership studies into the conversation with philosophy. I think we'll all be better off in some way. We'll all get a sort of a, a sense of direction. I often will will end the podcast asking listeners what they're what they're reading or listening or streaming or something like that. I'm going to end it in a little bit of a different way today. So who was right? So Brent, sir, you are first up to the table. <laughs> sure. Well, I think I mean in in some ways I'm gonna I'm gonna take the cowardly way out to suggest that the question who was right is maybe not exactly the the way that I tend to think of it. You know who yeah. is who is the most interesting or who's the most useful for for us in in thinking about how this this works and maybe. I'm going to take even a second second cowardly way out to say that to it's not just one person it's it's a, a group of of people and that is to say the ancient philosophers are to me the more interesting and the more useful way of of looking at philosophy as applied to leadership and why is that well, first of all, they're writing when philosophy was new and fresh and something that, that needed to be defended and you know vigorously argued for. And so you get some really meaty arguments in, in the ancient philosophers. But I think much more importantly, taking yourself outside of your own particular context in this modern world in which we, in which we live 
and trying to think about these problems that confront us in a completely different way, you know, in, in from different assumptions about what human beings are for and about and, and what human nature is and what we should do with each other and, and how we should relate to each other and that sort of thing can really widen one's scope and can, can you know, force you to to be a lot more self-critical. And so that, that's what draws me to somebody like a Plato or an Aristotle or a Thucydides or an author like that. Great. Mark? I think I'll take a different tap, which is a sort of cowardly tap too. I don't want Machiavelli to be right. Hmm. Because I think, again, you, a superficial read, reading of Machiavelli is this is a handbook for gangsters. Thorough reading of Machiavelli says, holy smokes, if this guy is right, I think we're at least the things that we want in our lives are in trouble. And the kind of person you wish to be and hope to be and long to be seems like a, a sad little fairy tale you've been telling yourself your whole life. So in my heart, I feel very Aristotelian, to be completely honest. I absolutely love Aristotle's ethics. I live Aristotle's ethics when I teach it. And my students, when they when I go through it with them, they they feel inspired by Aristotle's ethics. So I want him to be right. <laughs> I want uh, goodness and nobility and you know aspirational views of leadership. But I think it's up to our to the audience to decide for themselves who is right and and walk through the the paths uh, beaten by great men, says Machiavelli in his book. And those are the one, and that's Plato, Aristotle, Machiavelli in our estimation. Awesome. Gentlemen, I hope this conversation continues. I hope we can have you back. I hope you will, will help us better understand this space, better help us join the conversation, which I thought was a really, really nice way to put that because I think you're right. It can feel a little intimidating and some of the writings can feel a little bit thick your enthusiasm, your inspiration for, for me personally to dig into some of this material. I've read two chapters of the book so far, and I'm excited to read more. I really am because I want to learn this space. I want to understand some of these foundational ways of thinking because I think you're exactly right. A lot of that thinking has been done. And how do we help that inform how we're thinking as leadership scholars? Gentlemen, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for being with us. Brent, Mark, I really, really appreciate your work. Thank you, Scott. It's been a real pleasure. Yes, thank you, Scott. Joining the conversation, uh, probably some places where it began, at least in the Western world. I'm sure there's some indigenous wisdom that uh, far precedes some of our conversations about Plato and Aristotle. But I think it's a really interesting conversation to join. And uh, their passion for this topic makes me excited to explore this topic. So Brent and Mark, thank you so much. The two of you said something important. All of these things that we're talking about today, they've probably been discussed. And are we aware of how they've been discussed in some of these foundational sources? That's the opportunity. That's the practical wisdom for me. If you have an understanding of some of these source materials, regardless of society, you may have a better understanding of how to think about these things today. You're joining a conversation that has occurred over decades and decades and centuries, which is pretty, pretty darn cool. It just is. So gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate your insights. Like I said, excited to have you back and for listeners, I hope you explore some source materials, whatever that means for you. 
Take care. Be well, everybody. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phronesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, Captovation Podcast, where I speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations. And now, Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.